following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Well, good morning. If you have your copy of the scriptures, join me if you would in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to talk to you this morning about heart transformation. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about transformation, I, I tend to get discouraged. I tend to be pessimistic. The truth is, I want to say I'm a realist, but in reality, I'm a pessimist. I kind of expect the worst. And so when I look at my own life, if I'm honest, I can see that God has transformed me, but it's taken a long time. And I can also see areas that are not where they need to be in in my life. And, And so I can become very pessimistic and discouraged. And sometimes we might look at other people and wonder, is there any hope that they would be changed, any hope that God can really make them different. And maybe you look in the mirror and you say, I kind of feel like I'm stuck and there's no way that God can make something out of me. God can help me change these, these, these things about me that are not quite what they should be. And then as a pastor, and I, I think about my own kids and I think about the world that they're growing up in, you know, at 45, I'll be 46 really soon. I'm kind of set. I, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. And You know, the world is not quite as attractive to me as it was when I was 17 years old, but I worry about the world my kid's going to grow up in. I I, I have walked by and I'll occasionally hear a cartoon that I think is safe, and I, what did they just say on that show? Anybody ever have that moment? It's not the long, the days when you could just let them turn on cartoons on Saturday morning and walk away without worrying what Bugs Bunny is going to say, those are long gone. And so, so I worry, well, what kind, is the world going to be so attractive to my kids that when they get to a certain age, they're going to say, sayonara Jesus, because I like this stuff. The, if I had to put it in words, I would simply say our world's kind of, our country has embraced, I'll use one simple word, godlessness. And it's discouraging. And the pessimist in me, the realist in me, sees, sees a, it's, how is it possible that uh, they're going to be transformed into what they're supposed to be. And, and then I look at other churches around, and there's so many great churches. I have friends that pastor in our community that are faithful gospel preachers, and, and there are many faithful ones across the country. But I, I have this problem. I have this thing called the Internet, and I can see preachers that I go, what in the world are they doing with the Word of God? One, I actually watched him literally copy and paste out of context and then add his own thoughts, putting words into God's mouth that weren't actually in the Bible so he could make a point. And the point was, send money to my ministry. And so they're peddling the gospel to get rich and others uh, uh, call themselves pastors. And I listened to an interview with a guy and he doesn't believe anything that I believe, but he preaches the Bible sometimes. He doesn't believe Jesus was sinless. He doesn't believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. He doesn't believe this, but he says so. I, I, that makes me pessimistic. And, and, but he said something that gives me hope. He said, I had this experience in a Baptist church, and I, I gave my life to Christ, and I, while I don't agree with all these other things, I can't deny that something happened. And, and so while I watch him, I go, man, there's something broken here in this man and his ministry. But it's discouraging, and I can only have my hope in one thing. Well, that moment was real, but something to look at him now, there's, there's, something's off, something's amiss. And so when you see these things going on, you can become quite discouraged. 
But then I want to take your mind to the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at Ephesians, but get this. This is the context. He is in prison where he writes this letter for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's in, the United States is not where it should be. I hope it gets better, but we're not Rome yet. Right? The Caesars were ungodly, totally wicked people, and they got away with it. And, and people like Paul were thrown into prison, not for sin or breaking the laws, except for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he writes these letters. And if you've ever read the letters to Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, any one of these letters, you realize that these are, he's writing to people who have come to faith in Christ out of godless paganism. And that stuff didn't just all of a sudden fall off of them the moment they got saved. And listen, I know people who got dramatically changed in a, in a blink of an eye when they got saved. But most people, it's a process. And so we see these letters and the Corinthian churches tore up spiritually from the floor up. The Ephesians, they're, they're in this context where they're literally being, their, their financial livelihood is being taken from them because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds them, hey, you've got riches in Christ Jesus. And God's doing all these great things, and he, he, you're not saved on accident. You're not in a relationship with Christ on accident. And so there's this context there. The Philippians, they're being persecuted just like Paul was when he was there. The Colossians have ungodly philosophy coming into the church. And then you hear there's, there's words in the Bible like there are people, people peddling the gospel for profit. And guess what? We've got those in the United States. They get TV shows. We've got guys that were following Paul. He would start a church, spend some time there, go on to the next church, and then he gets word that there were people coming in behind him and perverting the gospel. Well, guess what? We've got that going on too. And yet when I read Paul, writing from prison, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can I tell you, when he has, he, he's giving us not a, a prayer as such, he's giving a report of what he's praying for. And can I give you the one word that characterizes, which I totally missed it until yesterday sitting in a prayer meeting with, with, with Phil and, and a few other guys. And the word is optimism. In the midst of the ungodliness around them, the struggles that the churches all have, he's in prison and he has utter optimism as he prays for these Christians that God is going to do something beyond the, what they could imagine. So let's begin. I want, to read verse, I want to read verse 20 and 21 to get us our, our mind around this concept of, of optimism, but then we're going to look at the entire prayer report because what Paul is ultimately praying for is a work of transformation in the hearts and lives of these Christians in the midst of ungodliness. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray, first off, I, I thank you for drawing my attention to the need to be transformed from a pessimist to an optimist. We as gospel-believing people, Christ-believing people, have every reason to be optimistic. Ungodliness has always been a part of our world, and as Christians, we we know there's a need for transformation in us. I pray for those who are hoping that in 2023 that God will make something different of them. I pray that today they would see and understand that because God is our Father, we have the Holy Spirit, and Christ is our Savior, we have every reason for hope, every reason for transformation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I have this sort of problem. One of the things that 
learning how to interpret scripture has done to me is that I get irritated when I see verses pulled out of context. And, and so I, it's not hard for me to imagine somebody reading something like Ephesians 3.20. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And they take that and they go, that means my business is going to thrive. Well, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm not saying God's against your business thriving, but I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Christians really living like Christians. And maybe God gives us a financial portfolio that helps us do that, but that may not be what he's talking about here in the text. In fact, I don't think this is what he's talking about. This is going to be the year that your brand of whatever you're doing is going to take off. You're going to, have your, you're going to make your mark on, on whatever business, whatever sport, whatever school you're in. You're, this is your year uh, because God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think or ask. And I think Paul is not really talking about that. These, he's writing the people who are having their livelihoods taken from them because they believe in Jesus Christ. He's talking about people being transformed into the image of Christ Jesus, regardless of what's going on around them. As I think back, and I can remember being in church and, and really wrestling with with. with how could I possibly be a Christian and, and, and fail? And then on the other hand, I'm thinking, boy, even, even if I really do get saved this time, I don't think I can stay saved. I mean, because I, I was always looking at my ability to perform. But what I'm seeing here is this. There's, our hope is not resting on us. It is resting on Christ who is working in us. My reason for optimism that I will be a better Christian on December 31st than I am today is not because of me. It's because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power that is at work within me. Same power that's at work within you if you've put your trust in Christ, Jesus. So Paul gives us this example of how to pray. He is giving this report, and I want us to catch something. We, too, should pray with optimism. Optimism. I kind of define it this way, at least from this text, is confident, confidence based on our awe of who God is. That gives us reason for optimism. Verse 14 and 15, we can pray with confidence because God is our Father. Look at verse 14 and 15. For this reason, we'll circle back to those three words. For this reason, I bowed my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He, he says, look, we can have confidence. I bow my knees in prayer before the God, God who is the father of every family, uh, the human race. There is not multiple races. There's one race, the human race. Some of us have a little more melanin in our skin than others. Some of us ha have a little different cultural heritage, but there's one race, the human race, and God is the father of us all. Therefore, he has confidence to bow his knee before them. He's being, he had been a Jew, or he is a Jewish man, and Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other. And in, in what he says there, for this reason, he's pointing back to what he's just been saying. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts this prayer. He starts, for this reason, I start to pray, and then he's, he changes course, and he starts just kind of reminding them, hey, guess what? I'm a Jew, and God has called me to be the apostle to you Gentiles, and Gentiles and Jews didn't get along. The Gentiles didn't want to eat meals with the Jews. Even, even in early church, the idea that Jews and Gentiles were sitting down to meal together was problematic. They had to wrestle through, how do we handle this? And so what, what he's getting at is, God is your father, and it says he was my father, and therefore I can pray with confidence for you. God has done so many great things for you Gentiles and for us Jews, and now he's brought us together into this one big family of where God is our father for this reason. I bow my knees before God the Father. 
See, Jesus and Paul are good models for how to pray. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life I'm like, I'm not sure how to pray for this person, for this situation, for me, for the church. Paul and Jesus are good models for how to pray. And Paul prays with confident awe because of God's great power and wisdom and the love that he has shown for us. Sending Jesus Christ, giving us the Holy Spirit, giving us the Bible, transform. Listen, you can, maybe you look at your own life and you're like, I don't think I can change. Or maybe you know that you've changed. The fact is, when I, when I look at myself, and I, I was a jerk. And sometimes I still am, to be honest with you. But if God can save me, why can he not save this other person? If God can change me, why can this other person not be changed? When you think of somebody, maybe there's somebody whose face comes to your mind, you think they could never get saved. Maybe you'd never say it, but that's what you think. I want to, show, I want to introduce to you by name a, a guy named Kenny. Uh, not my son, Kenny. He was an elder at our church in Springfield, Missouri. And I knew him as the elder, but I didn't know him as a teenager because as a young man, a young adult, he got involved in a gang. And he uh, was guilty of one of the degrees of murder because he killed somebody in a gang fight. And so he was in prison. And while he was in prison, he gets religion. Actually, he gets Jesus. And he is radically transformed. And eventually he gets, he gets out of jail and he marries the church secretary of all people. And then he becomes an elder in the church. Now Calvary doesn't really have elders, but, well, Steve kind of functioned like an elder this afternoon or this morning. An elder is something like a, a pastor who's not the primary teacher. He has another job outside of the church and he helps shepherd the flock. That's Kenny. The guy who was in prison for murder, which you would never believe it. My friend Brandon referred to him as the angel of mercy. And his dad, who was the pastor, was like the opposite. See, now, his dad, for the most part, never did the wrong thing. Kenny was a different animal. He had experienced the grace and forgiveness of God. But most people, to hear of a guy like Kenny being in prison after being in a gang and killing somebody, there's no hope for him. But I know him as the elder of Jefferson Avenue Baptist Church. See, there is nobody beyond the reach of, uh, of God's grace. There is nobody that God cannot save. And so as Christians, we have optimism that somebody can be saved. And therefore, as a Christian, maybe who's gone the wrong way, maybe it's you, maybe it's somebody you love has gone the wrong way. There's always reason for optimism that God can transform them. And so we should pray with confidence. Because God is your Father. He's the Father of all nations. Transformation is always possible. What Paul is getting at is that God has revealed that he has big and generous plans for everyone who believes in Jesus, regardless of their gender, language, the amount of melanin in their skin, their ethnicity, their family of origin, the, the mistakes that they made in the past. God has big plans for us. And when I write that down, every time I think of God having big plans for us, like a, heavenly, a loving Heavenly Father, I think of my own dad and the time that he, he took us to Maine. Now, uh, as, an, as a kid, I didn't really like, realize how co cool Maine is, but boy, I, I should like to go back now. 
But he, he planned it all out. We didn't have the best car, so he rented a car. And every city, every stop, he had pulled out the auto club manual, and he had planned it all out. We were going to go to this city, go to the, do this activity. And we found this water park where they had tubes, and at the end of the water slide, you were seven feet above the water, and then you'd crash down into this. It was, I was okay, I did it once, so it was enough for me. I will, if you want to know why, I'll explain later, but it's gross, okay? And so... Dad planned all of this stuff. Alpine slides where you're on the mountain. There's little carts that you drive in. and It was all planned. Dad had big plans. Went to Katie, one of the mountains and take this train up to the top. Dad planned it all. And so when I see that Paul is describing God as a loving Heavenly Father who's got big, great plans for us, that, that kind of makes me step back and say, you know what? If God's done all this, I, I can trust him for more. I can trust him. Every once in a while with our kids, we'll be like, hey, kids, we're going to do this. And they can't let it go. they got to drive Chrissy and I nuts until we give all the details. And finally, like, can you just let it come to you? It's going to be good. We promise you. And, and with God, the same thing. He's planned all this great stuff. And because as a loving Heavenly Father who has moved heaven and earth to bring you into a saving relationship with him, you can hope and pray with confidence. We can ask God to do a great work in our lives our church, and even our community because God is the Father of all peoples. Paul says here, here's what I'm praying. I'm asking God to do this for you. I'm asking God to do a work of transformation in your heart. Let's take a look at verse 16 through 19. I pray, I bow this my knee so that according to the riches of His glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. There's an inner strength. Verse 17, So that, with the result that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if you're a Bible reader and you, you know the Bible a little bit, you go, wait a second. I, I thought that happened when we, we got saved. Well, it does. We'll, we'll explain what this means. But that's a good question. What, what does he mean there? Because I thought Jesus already dwelled in my heart. I'm praying that you, being rooted and grounded in love, Christ's love, may have strength to comprehend, to grasp, to understand with all the saints, not just you, with all the Christians, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So Paul is praying that believers would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. And when you grow as a Christian, you become stronger. Like a boy becoming a man. I got four kids, uh, age 4 to 11, and one of my 11-year-olds kind of getting strong. And he doesn't mind to offer help carrying stuff these days. He's feeling his strength. Like a, and I don't mind to ask for the help because he's actually kind of strong. So it's, it's helpful. And, and so I'm watching him grow and get stronger. And as a Christian, when we're talking about the inner strength, listen, you come to Jesus Christ, you're, you're born again, the Bible says. You're an infant. Babes in Christ. Well, guess what? The expectation is as Christians is there, there will be a growth, a transformation. And the Holy Spirit is the one who, who, listen, the Holy Spirit gave you the new birth and the Holy Spirit is one that strengthens you. And, and you grow like, like a boy becoming a man. Kids transform before our eyes. They become bigger, wiser, stronger. They start doing adult things. I have a, a niece who 
I used to call her Abaru. She's Abby, but she got engaged yesterday. And I'm like, that's awesome. And so we're talking about it at the dinner table. And I'm like, you remember Andrew? And the kids are like, oh, yeah, he's, he's cool. And Austin's response was, yeah, but does he know Christ? And I was like, great question. And I said, boys, someday you're going to notice that girls are cute. And after you're done noticing they're cute, you should then ask, do they know Christ? Great question. Austin, I don't know where he learned that because I don't think I taught him that. I didn't think he was concerned about that at eight years old. You see, as kids transform before eyes, so we too as Christians, we come to Christ as babes, as infants, but as God works in us, we become, we begin to think, act, talk, and guess what? More like Jesus Christ. See, uh, one of the things that I want, I, I think is kind of being lost in the church world is coming to faith in Christ and the experience of transformation. God is not making you a better version of you. He's making you more like Jesus Christ. Don't miss that continues in verse 17. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, uh, that, that's a little confusing, but uh, let's kind of talk about that. But Jesus Christ takes residence up in your heart when the moment you put trust in Jesus Christ. But I think what he's talking about is when Christ takes residence in us, he begins to remodel us from the inside out. How would I picture this? Well, when I got married, after I got married, Chrissy moved into my apartment, which then became our apartment. And uh, we have a different taste in, in uh, decorating. I, I, I like to call it minimalist elegance. And, and she said, well, we're going to do this here. We're going to put that there. And I said, well, honey, I, I kind of like it. She said, no, it's going to look like people actually live here. And um, you know when Jesus dwells in our heart through faith, you and I start to look like Jesus really lives here because our words start to change. The things, the things that we used to get involved with start to change. We begin to find places of service. And we actually, you know, I get it. For most of you guys, if you're like really active in serving, you can get to where you get burned out. I get that. Um, serving those can be really a joyful time. What's this like? Well, my kid, one of my kids, Carter, <laughs> He's been asking for a knife for Christmas for a couple, couple three years now. We bought him this little Cabela's toolkit, and uh, it's got a little knife on it. And his excuse to keep cutting stuff, well, I got to keep practicing, so I don't make sure I make sure I don't cut myself. He opened that thing, and I, as soon as I opened it out of the box and I handed it to him, the way he ran off, I'm like, he's gonna cut himself, guarantee it. Not ten seconds later, he's like, eh, he was crying because he cut himself. Once he got over the shock, he said, I got to practice now. So that was his excuse to keep the knife out. One day I had gotten something from, uh, I don't know, Amazon, and it was a box, and it, you know, taped up, and I came home, and I'm like, Carter, go get your knife and help me open this box. And his face was like, lit up! When you find out what your spiritual gift is, and you begin to find opportunities to use it, your face starts to light up the way Carter's did when he used that knife. It was like this moment of, hey, I can be productive. See, Paul is praying that God would take up residence in our heart because when, when he does, it starts to look like Christ lives there and before you know it, you're finding places to serve. You're not laughing at all the dirty jokes or at least not telling them and trying not to laugh when they're kind of funny but you know they're inappropriate. Something begins to change in you when Christ really begins to take up residence in you. And I've kind of come to know that the more we trust Christ and more faith we have in him, the less we resist the changes that he leads us to make. 
In other words, we're more willing to surrender. Now, when Chrissy said we need to make this place look like people live here, I could have fought her on it. But I was like, I, I trust her. And it looked like a lady lived there, not just not a bachelor. See, when he goes on to pray in verse 18 that asking that God would enable you to understand and grasp how much God loves you. He's using these big words, the height and depth and the width and all of this stuff. And it's this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the words he uses. What does that mean? It, it means it's more than you and I are really able to, to grasp. Every once in a while, I, I, I'll, my, one of my kids will come over. Last happened last night at dinner. Trinity came over, hugs my arm, and goes, I love you, Daddy. And I say, I love you too, more than you, more than you know. Think of that. Maybe that's kind of how God feels about us. I love you more than you know. And what Paul is praying is that God would help you to understand just how much your Heavenly Father loves you. See, then when, when this happens, we begin to be transformed. And then all of a sudden you begin the Bible verse that was in the book of 1 John that says, we love because He first loved us. We begin to understand what that means. Because the love of Christ has been poured in our hearts and we've experienced that love, then we begin to love our children well and our wife well and our husband well and our, and our neighbors well because we love God. It's just like this cycle. The love of Christ is shed in our heart, and we're like, wow, we've been loved, and it's a little bit easier to love others because of how much God loves us. See, when we begin to recognize, when God really begins to dwell in our heart, when we really begin to be transformed, we feel the love of God, and we begin to act differently. Ultimately, what I want us to get is the transformation that Paul is praying for, that he is so optimistic about, is that God, who called us into salvation, would then become more like our Savior. And he has every reason for optimism as he prays for these former pagans who I'm sure didn't have it all correct. He is praying that God would transform them. I say that he asked that God would make them more like Christ. Let me defend that statement. Verse 19, I'm going to read it again. He's praying that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. While he's in prison, he writes another letter. He writes a letter to the Colossians, and he uses similar language, but there he's talking about Christ. He says this in verse 19. For in him, him being Christ, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What, what Paul is praying for when he says that you'll be filled with the fullness of God is that you'll be like Christ Jesus. That's what he's praying for. Not a better version of you, not a more successful version of you, not necessarily one that isn't afraid of what people think, although that's probably part of it. Guess what? Jesus was really far more concerned about what God the Father thought than what about his peers thought. Paul is praying that God would make us like Jesus. And he prays it with confidence. And maybe you've got a loved one that you can see they put their trust in Christ, but they're going in the wrong direction. And it's to look at the outside, to look at the circumstances. There's not a lot of hope. The only hope, the reason that Paul might tell us to pray with confidence is that Jesus is our Savior and God is our Father. 
And if he loves us, he loves them. We can pray for transformation. We can pray with confidence that God would transform us because our transformation brings him glory. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's prayer report ends with an expression of hope that God would be glorified. He is hopeful because God can do more than we ask or hope or think. The person who maybe struggles with a Christian who struggles with an addiction and may think they can never get victory over it, the reason you can pray with hope that God would give you victory is because when you and I are delivered of the besetting sins, it brings God glory. Paul hopes that the church would be so transformed that it glorifies God beyond all imagination. He hopes that God would be glorified in Christ and that he would be glorified by everyone who is in Christ through faith in every generation, including this one. In every generation in church throughout history, God desires for Christians to be transformed, that we would become so much like Jesus that people would glorify him. You know, when Jesus started to get a hold of my life, my, I would be, I'd be lying to you if I said my friends appreciated the change. But they saw it. They said it was weird. It might be true, but what they thought was weird was really godliness, which they were not used to seeing in me. Because I was no longer going along with what was being done. And in so doing, it was glorifying God the Father. He is praying that we would let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We can ask God for this with confidence because a bright Christian witness to the glory of God the Father through His Son Jesus is the goal of the Holy Spirit who has been placed in you. And my prayer is that our church and as we as individuals will become more like Jesus in 2023. I pray that the kingdom of God would be done in our hearts, our homes. And get this, the church is a, the household of faith. Our hearts, our homes, and our hometown. Because there's a lot of people right now in Vermilion County that aren't really that interested in Jesus. But wouldn't it bring glory to God if they came to repentance and faith? And we can pray for that and pray with optimism, regardless of the fact that we are a very materialistic country and are more interested in our boats than we are about Jesus. We can pray with optimism. God can get through to the hardest of hearts. And that's what I'm praying for, for you, for me, and for our community. The transformation that Paul is praying for is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is a work of God not of man. But I want you to understand something. It took me a long time to get my head around this. God's grace is not opposed to our effort. It is opposed to our earning. 
Therefore, we can strive for transformation while trusting and knowing that it is God that does the work. What's this like? My, my friend Eric had this 1987 Dodge Daytona Carroll Shelby edition car, and it was kind of quick. But then he burned up the engine and the transmission. He said, it's time to rebuild this thing. And, and he did. In fact, he, he rebuilt it, put the whole new transmission. He's got this, uh, to put it went from su- turbocharged to supercharged. It sounded like a nuclear generator was going off when the, when the supercharger would kick in. And, and he actually ripped off the door when he was backing it up and he had the door open and he didn't have enough money anymore. So he, he put a, got a junkyard door. It worked, but it was purple and the car was like, was red. So here you have this mismatched box with supercharger in it. To look at it, you don't know that there's power in there, but hidden under the hood is this powerful engine. And then people wanted to race him. Corvettes. He didn't even have to downshift, and he was beating Corvettes on the freeway. Police officers, I wasn't driving. All right, I was, but this is what would happen. He would, and he would just kind of like he was like the Larry Bird of the freeway. He was just looking at him like, "You think I stink?" But he doesn't even have to downshift. And then he blows him and leaves him in the dust because there's all this power in the engine. Guess what, Christian? You may look like a beaten down, may feel like a beaten down old Dodge Daytona with a purple door when it should be red. But when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit was depositing you have this powerful engine. And what you and I need is God to open up the throttle and show us what he can really do. And that's what I'm praying for. I think that's what Paul was praying for. The Holy Spirit works. How does he work? In some ways, when I, I've read a lot of what people write. In some ways, it sounds... I like the Twilight Zone. But I think the Holy Spirit works through God-ordained means that are really simple. The Lord's Supper, baptism, worship, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, evangelism, service. When you see people really engaging in these things, maybe you can't do everything that there is under the sun, but you really see people engaging those, something happens, it, it transforms them. And probably the key that turns the engine over is faith. That's why Paul's praying for it. Trust. And so that's why we gather, grow, and go, because these are the things that God uses to transform God's people. We gather for worship, fellowship, we grow through personal study and group study. And then we go. We find opportunities to serve God and others both inside and outside the church. And when you see us simply getting involved with those three things, we see God do a radical work of transformation. And nobody is beyond the reach of this. The Apostle Paul writes this with optimism. Think about his story. He, uh, when you first meet Paul in the book of Acts, He's literally standing there overseeing the murder of St. Stephen. When you see him again later, when he finally meets Christ, he is actually pursuing Christians so he can arrest them. They're running for their lives, and he is chasing them down to arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. That's when he gets saved. And no one else believes it. The, the church, they're all afraid. They're like, wait a second, we're supposed to hang out with this guy? He was just trying to kill us all. 
and this is who God brings in. This is who God uses to reach the Gentiles. And oh yeah, you're a Gentile most likely. Because God works miracles of transformation in us. And we see it in Paul. We see it in my friend Kenny. And we see it in me and you. Maybe, maybe you're like Chrissy. She, she grew up in a Christian home. And for the most part, she, she wasn't perfect. She didn't get into all the big sins. Well, guess what? There's a miracle that she got saved still. It's a miracle that my kids got saved. There's a thing. If you got Christian kids, if you're a Christian parent, you raise Christian kids, get this. The things of God become so become so accustomed to it because that's all they've ever known, and that's a scary place to be in, too. And yet God can break through all of that stuff and save your kids, your grandkids, and transform them. Can I suggest to you when we look at the world around us and we talk about transformation and salvation, there's a lot of reasons to be discouraged, but we ain't in Rome. Nobody's killing us for our faith. There's always been temptation to pursue godlessness. But there's been this work of God for the last 2,000 years in this thing called the church. And that, beloved, is why we can have optimism for ourselves, for our loved ones maybe who have gone wayward, or even our neighbors. Listen, if God could save you, he could save your neighbor. What makes you so sure you're so, so much better and more likely than they are? So we can pray with optimism. Finally, as our praise team comes for our song of response, the gospel message is really simple. All of, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have pursued godlessness. We are like sheep gone astray. But Jesus Christ comes in the world to save us, to redeem us. He lives a sinless life dies on a cross to pay for our sins. Not his. He never sinned. And he rose again the third day. That has been the gospel message. This morning, if you know that you've sinned and you've been pursuing things that God would have you not to pursue, and you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and today you'd like to come home to him. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you'd like to do that, I invite you to make your way to the front. And he'll be calling Jesus. He will hear you. He will save you. Please stand for our song of response. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.